Today we continue in our Advent series, What Others Say About Jesus. Last week we took a look at what Gabriel had to say, and today uh, we find another angel's words, though unnamed, in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. I hope you'll find your bulletin insert with the passage printed upon it as we'll use this as a unison reading together. Again, reading in Luke 2, beginning to read at verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel... A multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This morning I want us to take a moment and think about paradoxes. Some of you may be familiar with the so-called Socratic paradox, the paraphrase of which is normally given this way, I know one thing that I know nothing. Now whether Socrates actually said those words or not is quite debatable, but if he did, we have an important insight from one of the founders of Western philosophy, and that is the more that we examine things in our lives and the world around us, the more we see paradoxes. Perhaps you picked up on a couple in our passage that we just read. Because we have an angel of the Lord giving this birth announcement of a king to whom of all people? To the shepherds. One of the lowliest groups on earth in that day and time. And as if that isn't enough, we see another paradox shortly thereafter. For the angel says, you'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. Now there's nothing too strange about that. It was a common practice to keep babies healthy and growing correctly, they believed, in that day and time. He said, you'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. This baby who is a Savior, who's not only the long-awaited Messiah, but is also Lord, that is to say king and ruler, is going to be found in a feeding trough. A king in a manger. How absurd. And yet, that's the message the shepherds received. I just wonder if we ever feel that way about these words. 
that it's all a bit absurd to think that the God who created the universe, the world out there of which we can see and know and many things we can't see and know, this all-powerful, this all-knowing God would condescend to be born like us and to take on the form of flesh, and yet that's the good news that's repeated over and over again all through the New Testament. For example, in Galatians 4, Paul says, When the time had fully come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. In his gospel, John says it simply and yet profoundly, the word, this Same word that was in the beginning and was with God and was God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. And to all who received him, who who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. And here in Luke we find this same good news of a great joy which will be for all people. This gift of a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And there we see three titles in that one verse. Christ and Lord we know a good bit about, or we should, because we dealt with those titles pretty extensively in our fall series on the book of Acts. But what about this title, Savior? That's something we call Jesus all the time, but... You know, it's not really in Scripture very often. Just three times in the Gospels. It's used just two times in the book of Acts. And a smattering of times in the epistles. And what we need to notice is that if we need a Savior, that means there's something from which we need to be saved. And that from which we need to be saved is sin. This is what the Apostle Paul spends all of Romans 1, 2, and 3 systematically laying out that sin is our problem. And he summarizes there in 3.23 that all have sinned. Every single person on earth, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's bad news. Because as Paul puts it in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? death. And that means that you and I from birth are on this path not to life but to death. And we need to be saved from that death, from that sin. And Jesus is the one and only who can save us from that death and give us life. As he was preparing his disciples for his own departure Jesus gives us those wonderful words there in John 14. I'm the way and the truth and the what? The life. He's the path to life. No one can come to the Father except through me. You see, Jesus as Savior brings life to those whom God calls and and saves them from their sins. Paul makes this clear to the Corinthians when he rehearses the apostolic teaching that he himself had received and then passed on to them. For he said, I delivered unto you that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accord 
with the Scriptures. If we want a more detailed version of that good news, we need only turn to Ephesians 2, where Paul says, You, He made alive when you were dead in your sins and trespasses. Among these, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of body and mind, and so we were by nature children of wrath, just like all the rest of mankind. But God, who is rich in mercy, you see, the gift of Christmas is the greatest but God that is in Scripture, and there are many. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You've been, what? Saved. That's why the gift of the Savior is given. For as John tells us in his third chapter, God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, I know you're supposed to know all of this, and I hope you know all of this. But this wonderful gift of God, of His only begotten Son, should tell you and me at least two things every single day. And that is that God hates sin. And He he loves you and me. And I think sometimes we forget that. We don't so much forget that God loves us. We hear that all of our lives. We can read it in Scripture over and over again, but we forget that God hates sin. Because we love sin. We don't hate it like God does. It's part of our nature. We're born into sin. That's one of the great paradoxes of grace that God gives up what he loves the most to save you and me who happen to be doing the very things he most hates. And who are we that we deserve that kind of gift and yet God gives it. But according to this text, he gives something else that we so desperately need and we find that in verse 13. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude in the Greek of the heavenly army praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. We have no trouble believing the first part of this heavenly army's words. They're praising God and that's something we expect angels to do. After all, they've seen God. They know better than anyone that he's worthy of our praise. It's the second part of this little message we have a problem with in the sense that we find it hard to believe because it proclaims the gift of peace. Peace in this world of violence? Peace in this world of of hate and anger? Peace in this world of wars and rumors of wars? I mean, go out there in the world and try and talk about peace to the Syrian refugees and see if you get very far. Try and talk about peace to those who live in southern Africa. 
Go up to most anyone who lives in the Middle East and see if they want to talk about peace as if it's a reality. Nothing could be further from the truth in their world. The world is the same old world. And yet scripture teaches that it may appear to be the same old world, but it's different. Let me try to explain why it really is different with the following story about Moss Hart. In his day, he was one of the great playwrights in this nation, and his fame was not only in America, but was worldwide. He wrote plays like you can't take it with you. The man who came to dinner, George Washington, slept here. He was honored in cities and palaces by presidents and kings and queens. Over the years, he saw amazing holiday celebrations and participated in all sorts of special events during the Christmas season. And one year, near the end of his life, he was being interviewed near Christmas time, and the interviewer asked what stood out about the best Christmas that he ever had. And without hesitation, he said, well, the best Christmas was when I was nine years old. And the people listening to the interview were stunned because they just assumed that the best Christmas of his would have been when he was an adult in some exotic location with fame and notoriety and wealth. He went on to explain that as a boy he would not look forward to Christmas at all. It was never a time of joy, but was always a time of dread for him because he had never received a toy for Christmas that he could remember. His parents were very poor, and his father worked two jobs, sometimes three, and was barely able to keep a roof over their heads. So Christmas was a time of pain and even dread for him. But that year when he was nine, on Christmas Eve, his father returned from work And he looked at Moss and he said, let's take a walk downtown. He couldn't believe what he was hearing. He got so excited because, for one thing, his father had always been very distant and didn't show any affection. And for his father to actually want to take a walk with him, this was a dream come true for him. But secondly, they were going to walk into the city which was code speak that when you went from the poor neighborhoods, that's where you went to buy a toy for Christmas. You see, families from the poor areas could not actually afford to go into stores to buy gifts. And so in the city, there would be these vendors with carts all along the streets, sort of like all these vendors in Christmasville this weekend, And they would have these cheap toys and trinkets. And the poor people would go up to the cart with their children. And they would pick out a toy. And that would be their Christmas gift. That was the ritual for their community at Christmas time. And now on this Christmas Eve, 
Moss Hart was actually walking up to one of those carts with his father. His dad looked around and picked up a few things, asked about prices, and said, well, we'll, we'll look around. And then they went to another cart, and the same scenario played out again. And they went to cart after cart down that long street, and Moss began to realize that they were coming to the end of the street and the end of the carts, and he would have loved to have had any toy that he had seen. Why was his father waiting? Then all of a sudden he realized that although his father must have had some money with which to buy something, he didn't have enough. He couldn't find even one toy that he could afford. And Moss got so mad thinking about how most kids received at least one toy on Christmas. 